Man, can we just sing for another hour? Is that possible? It is. When we have such beautiful scripture-filled songs, as a church, we've been given a great inheritance from songwriters past and present, and it's, it's hard to even open up the Bible and think I can say it any better than that. But, uh, but I'm thankful to do that this morning. We're going back to our little mini-series, The Glories of the Cross. Uh, about once a year, you, those of you who know me well know it's hard to get me to stop preaching. So about once a year, Chase lets me out of my cage and gives me the pulpit for a month and says, okay, go ahead. So that's what we're doing. We're going back to those passages in the New Testament that talk specifically about the cross. I think we cannot focus on the cross enough. We cannot understand grace well enough. And so as we walk through the book of Acts, seeing the amazing things that are being done by the preaching of the gospel, it's only appropriate that we zoom back in on what that preached gospel is. So this morning we're going to Galatians chapter 3. Turn with me if you would to Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to focus in on this passage, one of the most important passages about the gospel in the New Testament. Before we go there, let's pray together. Heavenly Father... We praise you. We give you glory for what we have just sung. That all the debt is paid. That we are included in Christ, in his death and in his glory. That by grace we have been saved. Father, open our eyes to see the beauties, the glories of the cross this morning. Move me out of the way that the bright, white, hot light of your glory would come through your Bible to our hearts. We praise you and thank you and say it in Jesus' name. Amen. On September 13th, 2001, then Liberty College President Jerry Falwell appeared on the television program The 700 Club with Christian media personality Pat Robertson to discuss the September 11th attacks. Baldwell and Robertson proceeded in the interview to state that the September 11th attacks were, quote, something that we probably deserved because of the sin of the nation. They then went on to state several persons and groups that they thought were particularly to blame for the decay in America. Now, what happened afterwards was a veritable media firestorm. Both on the left and the right, religious and non, attacked Robertson for saying that. And soon, Robertson, Falwell, and the, the television network that aired the interview all released complete and total apologies. Now, I don't mention this to in any way validate or lionize either of these men or their statement. In fact, if you go back and read it, you can still find it online. It's largely unhelpful, insensitive, with not a few theological errors, I would argue. It's never wise to put ourselves in the place of God and call which natural disasters happened for what sins. That's never smart. But I bring this up because I find the cultural response telling. You see, the lion's share of the criticism, even from Christians, had little to do with theological deficiencies in the statement, the conflation of America with Israel, bad exegesis from the Bible. No, the reason why people were upset is that you would dare to say that God would ever curse someone for rebellion. We have lost the ability to talk about a God who would actually be opposed to sinners. Could God possibly curse? 
Listen to these words that are the background of this passage today. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of the womb and the fruit of the ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed you will be when you go in and cursed you will be when you go out. The Lord will send curses and confusion and frustration on all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of your evil deeds because you have forsaken me. That passage taken from Deuteronomy 28 is the very background of the gospel that Paul is going to preach in Galatians 3, that those who turn away from God are cursed. And I think we have entirely lost our ability to talk this way. We talk about the gospel in terms of God loving you and having a wonderful plan for your life. That's true. We're going to get to that in the second half of this message. We talk about God's love for everybody. That's true. We're going to get to that. But gone from our vocabulary, even gone from our mindset, is the ability to grasp that God could possibly lay a curse upon the earth. And I think if we lose that, we lose the gospel because we lose a Savior. Let me show you. We're going to read from Galatians chapter 3, verse 10 and following. Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the question really throughout all of Galatians is how is one made right with God? Paul is coming to the Galatian church and there's a disagreement. Are we made right with God? Are we made righteous If you remember four weeks ago, we talked about justification in Romans, how that's being made right with the universe because God is the fountainhead of all good that is. So righteousness isn't simply law-keeping, a to-do list and a to-don't list. Righteousness has to do with being right with the very heart of God. So how is one made righteous? And the argument that's going on in Galatia is are we made righteous simply by faith, simply by trusting in Christ, or is there stuff we ought to do in addition to that? Can you be made right with God and maybe a little righter by keeping some of the Old Testament law? If you're Christian plus, Christian plus Jewish, Christian plus law, isn't the plus always better? Isn't adding something always good? Doesn't that make you just a little righter? And Paul steps in in Galatians and says, you're fools. And he's going to show us why it is that trying to be a little righter actually makes you cursed. So how is it that we are made right with God? 
Well, in light of what Paul's talking about here, verse 10 should be rather unsettling. Because he says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say the law is just insufficient? That's what we might expect. Those who rely on the works of the law won't make it. Good. Those who rely on the works of the law, the law isn't good enough. You can never be perfect enough. Therefore, you won't make it. Are we comfortable with that? Saying, oh, well, you need grace. Interestingly, that's what the Mormon church teaches. That we are saved after all that we can do. So, Paul doesn't say the law is just insufficient. No, actually, he says, those who rely on the works of the law are cursed. Cursed. Again, I think that has fallen out of our vocabulary. What, what does that even mean to our minds? I use that open, opening illustration to show that even within the church, the sense of God sending a curse, we're just a little uncomfortable with it. We don't want to talk about that. It, it seems weird. It, it's been so used by political punditry that we're like, oh, I don't. can we talk about God cursing? We sense, uh, we sense this image of maybe a, a tattooed voodoo doctor as he mutters a mystical mantra dancing around an enemy's hut. Or maybe, uh, maybe if you're a little younger, you think of one of the antagonistic characters in Harry Potter hexing somebody with a wand. And gone, I would say, even repulsed from our minds is the idea that God would supernaturally oppose his enemies. And yet this idea of curse is essential to understanding the gospel. Why is it that when faced with this issue of legalism or not, Paul goes to a curse? I think we need to understand that. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 3. We're in Galatians chapter 3. Going to Genesis chapter 3. Very beginning of your Bible, the start of the whole story. And we know the story. God creates the heavens of the earth. Last of all, he creates man. And after creating this perfect world, he sets man in the garden. And in chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord took man, put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there is the first command. The first great rule by which man might be right with God. Tend the garden, just don't eat of that tree. We know how the story goes. The serpent tempts Eve. Then Eve conveys his lies to Adam, and together they both partake of the fruit, disobeying God's command. And what's the result? Well, we know the story. We say death. But interestingly, do they drop dead? No. God's command wasn't to prevent poisonous fruit. It wasn't a, this is bad for you, therefore don't do it. No, the command goes much deeper than that. And we see why in God's response. In chapter 3, verse 14, Adam and Eve hide from God for a while. He finds them and confronts them, and this is what he says. To Adam, Eve, and the serpent, starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. There comes that language again, cursed are you. First time in the Bible. 
And above all the beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go. The dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. He's cursed the serpent, he's cursed the woman, and now he moves to the man. To Adam he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. But by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust. And to dust you will return. You see, sin isn't simply a passive result. It doesn't produce badness just because it's sin. No. God curses the effects of sin. In that moment, when Adam and Eve took the fruit, they declared war on God. And the curse is God's just retribution. Your livestock, your fields, your marriage, your childbearing, your work, your life, they will all be cursed. If you think of it, the eating of the tree was the pearl harbor of man's war on God. And the curse is the waking of the giant. The biblical curse is God's verdict on the world that all who live in rebellion against him will find their lives destroyed. It's the undoing of creation. Lest we be haughty and think God doesn't have a right to do this or he's overreacting, we have to remember that it was God who created the fruit. It was God who gave them life. It was God who gave them all things. And in essence, the curse is God saying to them, if you won't have me as your creator, I'll take it away. If you won't have me as your God, then I'll take back the crops that I make grow. I'll take back the fruit of the work that I gave you. I'll take back the beauty of the relationships that I put on this earth. I'll take back the very breath of life that is in you so that you go back to being dust. If you won't have me, then why will you have my blessings? The curse is nothing left less than the active opposition of God, the promise that he will make war on those who make war on him. And lest we get cocky and think that this is too much, that pain and suffering in the world is unjustified, may I remind you that he could have taken it all. All that we see, all that is good is from him. So that our lives are nothing less than suffering is evidence that the curse is not complete. Friends, this is nothing less than the Christian understanding of the world. The biggest question that we have to answer, in my opinion and worldview, is why is the world in conflict? Why do we see both beauty and brokenness? That men can do amazingly good things and yet be so inhumane to one another. We can build hospitals and then kill babies in them. We can take aid to foreign lands and then oppress them for oil. How does this happen? How, do, how are we both? Well, the truth is, 
It's evidence of the curse. That God created a good world, and yet because of sin, He has afflicted it. We see a world that has declared war on God, and newsflash, we aren't winning. Every time I do this, this gets very personal. This gets very real in real life. It's not just big theological stuff because every time I counsel someone, every time I do a hospital visitation, all of it is screaming out, it should not be this way. People shouldn't be dying of cancer. We shouldn't have miscarriages. We shouldn't wrestle with pain and suffering. It shouldn't be this way, and every time it happens, it is screaming out to us, it was not meant to be this way. It was not meant to be this way. And perhaps the curse would make sense to us if we simply stopped there. We might be able to say, well, that's the result of bad people, and we just are trying to be good people living in a bad world. But that's not the verdict that the gospel gives. Go back to Galatians 3 with me, if you would. Paul looks at this curse, and he says that that we have to respond to it. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And if you're a Jew before Christ, that doesn't make any sense. Yes, Paul, we know the earth fell. We know God cursed the world. And that's why he gave us the law, so that we could keep it. So that we could be restored. What do you mean that everybody who tries to do that is cursed? We're just doing our best. He says... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. There's the answer. The law would work if you could do every single thing in it. This is the standard that Jesus used in his preaching. But he just brings out how how difficult it is to do that. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? He says, okay, you know that the law says don't murder, but you do realize that means don't hate. You know that the law says don't commit adultery. You do realize that means don't let your eyes wander. To the rich young ruler who says, don't worry, I've kept the great commandment. Jesus said, great, now go sell everything. You're ready to follow me? Well, you got to hate your father and mother. That's how good you have to be. That's how hard you have to follow. That's the standard you have to keep. Why? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And Paul shows this goes all the way back to Abraham. This is not a new standard. It's just that we didn't understand. But as I've wrestled through trying to apply this, interestingly, in our day and age, I meet very few people who are concerned about keeping the Old Testament laws for the sake of salvation. That's that's not a common problem that I run into. I've yet to have to counsel a Judaizer. But I think we have a way of making our own laws. In Romans 1, 
Paul says, those who don't have the law become a law unto themselves. We have a way of creating our own little mini-moralities. And if you want to know what your mini-morality is, all you have to do is fill in this sentence. I'm a pretty good person because... Guess what? You just found out where you're a legalist. I'm a pretty good person because... And it can be anywhere on the political spectrum or the moral spectrum. Maybe you think you're a pretty good person because you work hard and you see other people who don't have your work ethic. Maybe you think you're a pretty good person because of something you've never done that other people do, or a place you've never been that other people go. Or maybe you think you're a pretty good person because you advocate for something on social media that your parents and grandparents were totally blind to. Or maybe you think you're a pretty good person because you think of the, you think of the world and you recycle and you're careful to take care of it. All of these things are good, but they're really just another law. And those who rely on the works of the law will be cursed. See, the problem is expressed perfectly in verse 12. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. What does he mean by that? It's like that old expression, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. In other words, if you choose to live your life in a violent way, then you reap violence. You have to live by the standard you set forth. Well, this is exactly what Paul is saying. If you want to live by the law, then you've got to die by the law. Here's the line in the sand. If you want to live by law, don't expect grace. You can choose to try to set that standard and live by it, but don't expect any grace when you fall short of it. Because those who live by the law die by the law. If you choose to have that be your way of salvation, don't expect God to meet you halfway there. He's given you one of two options. If you want to present your righteousness to God, that's just fine, but all you'll have to present is your righteousness. And don't expect Him to meet you halfway because... That is the path of grace. The biggest lie the devil has ever told is that pretty good people make it into heaven. I hear this all the time, and the scary part is people think it's Christian. They think it's in the Bible. It's not. Everywhere the Bible says, no, 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 it is not about good people making it to heaven. There are no good people I heard one pastor say, the Bible is not a story of good people and bad people. It is a story of bad people and Jesus. Good people do not make it to heaven. Saved people make it to heaven. That is the gospel. And we have to shatter this lie that we've told ourselves. It's not in here. Paul shatters this illusion, and he points back, and he says, basically, through all the Old Testament, works have never really gotten anybody into heaven. He goes back to the very first, what we would call saved man, in a sense, right? We see the fall in Adam, and then God fast-forwards to raising up a people by which he can show his salvation, and the very first person he raises up in order to show that in a practical way in a people is Abraham the great patriarch of Israel. And what does he say? Abraham worked hard. Abraham kept the law. Abraham kept his promises, and God counted it as righteousness. Oh, no. Paul says, no, not at all. You missed the point. Abraham had faith 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. Even Abraham was saved in this way. So how is it that we can be saved by faith? You see, that's the logical thing that anyone should ask at this point, that we should be asking of Paul, that we should be asking of the text. How is it that I can be saved by faith? You've just told me that there are these two worlds, that works is opposed to faith. Faith is opposed to works. But I've got a works problem, Paul. I'm a sinner. I don't keep the whole law. Faith is apples and oranges. It's in a different category. How can my trust fix my works problem? Well, here's a beautiful exchange. The heart of our message this morning and the heart of the gospel in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That curse that is laid on the world, the great exchange happens in Christ. Now, if you're here and you're like me, you've been a Christian for a long time, it is really easy to blow by a verse like that, to heartily affirm it, and yet not really have it hit to our hearts. That's why we preach the Bible and not just read it on Sunday mornings, is sometimes we've, we've grown cold to something, we've grown stale to something, and so I want to take that verse and use all of my skill to just ram it into our hearts today. Because that's what I have to do to myself every week is go, no, listen again. Hear it again. What does it actually mean for Christ to become a curse for us? The curse is God's war upon sin. It's his punishment for sin poured out on God, just retribution, infinite wrath for infinite offense. Paul says Jesus could absorb that. We spoke of the evidence of the curse, pain and brokenness in the world, every illness, every broken heart. We get just a hint of what it is that Christ was bearing on the cross. But the physical effects are just the surface. Much deeper is the spiritual curse that God has laid upon the world. What does that mean? Well, Paul writes this letter to, of the Galatians to Jews to help them understand that the solution for the curse the very curses outlined in the law is not the law. If we want to understand the Jewish idea of cursing, we have to understand the inverse, the Jewish idea of blessing. See, God gives the law to Israel. He tells them, keep this and you will be my people. And then the prophets come along. Those prophets that I think oftentimes we struggle to understand if you're like me, when I was a young Christian, you do Genesis, that's got some great stories. Exodus has got some great stories. <laughs> Leviticus, we don't have any numbers. <laughs> move on. Nothing there, nothing to see here. You get some good stories and Kings and Samuel and Chronicles, and then you get to all those prophets, and it's like, what are these guys talking about? Well, here's what the prophets are talking about. This is oversimplistic, but it helps us to start to get a grasp. Two sides. Prophecies of weal, old-fashioned word. Prophecies of woe, that one we're a little more used to. That the prophets would come along and say, stay close to God. And if you do, great things will happen. Prophecies of weal. God will bless you and keep you. And if you don't, if you run from him, if you break his law, prophecies of woe. 
He will curse you and break you and send you out from the land. And that was constantly the exchange. All of the prophets turn on that idea. Stay close to God and he will bless you. Run from him and he will curse you. And they just apply it to every single situation. The prophets are the life application study Bible of the law. Don't do this, do that, or he'll bless you. So what is it that the blessing of God ultimately culminates in? I can't think of a better place to understand the blessing of God than the Aaronic blessing. You don't have to turn there. It's very short. You probably already know it. In number six, the priests are taught a blessing that they're to read over the people when they come to worship to tell them of what God's relationship is to them. The culmination of being reconciled to God, and this is the blessing. It's only three lines. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. So that's the sum total of salvation, isn't it? To see God's face, that's what Moses asked for. If you've been a Christian a long time, you know the hardest part about living the Christian life is serving a God you don't see. To see his face, to know that he is gracious, to know that he cares, to know that he lifts up his countenance to us and gives us peace. Prophet Zephaniah describes it as he sings over us with great joy. Some total of salvation that God would reverse the curse of Eden and when we approach him, rather than an angel with a sword that would keep us out, it would be God himself with his arms open wide to welcome us in. So the goal of all those blessings, the fountain of God's blessings is the presence of God himself. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. The path of life ends at the feet of God. That's where the presence of joy is. That's good stuff, but that begs the question, what then is the curse? See, that's the critical question for us today because the very heart of the verse about our reconciliation with God is that Jesus bore the curse for me. Jesus became a curse for me. What did Jesus become? We get a little hint in Matthew 27 as Jesus cries from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, you remember that great ironic blessing? What happens when you invert it? The Lord curse you and reject you. The Lord hide his face from you, give you no grace. The Lord turn from you and make your existence a life of strife. Friends, that is hell. And Paul is telling us that at the cross, Jesus became that curse. Jesus looked to God and God said, I will not look upon you. The Father said, I will not bless you. I will not give you peace. You'll pardon my language, but the cross is nothing less than the Father looking to the Son and on behalf of his people saying, God damn you. Christ was damned. For us, 
he was condemned for us. In our place, condemned he stood, bearing the full weight of the curse and all that that meant. He wasn't just under a curse for us. He became a curse for us. See, Paul brings out this, this quotation from the Old Testament. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What's he saying? He's not just pointing to the cross. There's a, a picture that he's drawing from the Old Testament. And this is a silly illustration, but it's the only one I can think of. It's, you watch old pirate movies or even new pirate movies, and it's kind of disgusting, but you'll see that they hang out somebody's corpse so that everybody who comes by knows they did something terrible. Don't do that. Don't be like that person. And Paul says, Jesus became that. He became reprehensible for us. Martin Luther writes, because he bears the sins of the world, his innocence is pressed down. But the sins and guilt of the entire world, whatever sins you and I and all of us have committed or may commit in the future, they are as much Christ's own Here's the key word, as if he himself had committed them. In short, our sins must be Christ's own, or we will perish eternally. See, Christ didn't just, didn't just seem to take on the curse. He didn't just suffer something similar to our punishment. He wasn't just identifying with us. He wasn't walking a mile in our shoes. No, he became the very curse that was mine. I hammer in on this because I think sometimes we speak of the gospel as a gift in such a way that is unhelpful. The gospel is definitely a gift, but sometimes our language falls short. We talk about the gospel as a gift as if it's God's Christmas present to us. There's been so many kids' Christmas music, musicals written about that, that God sets under the Christmas tree for us to unwrap. That's a beautiful picture. There's nothing really wrong with that. It just falls way short. Because a gift that is just offered, the content of which does not tie me to the gift giver. No. The gospel, the gift of the gospel is nothing less and so much more than the gift of a bride to her husband on the wedding day. Or the husband to the wife. They give themselves. That is the gift of the gospel. It's a gift that changes our identity. It's a gift that leaves us forever tied to Christ and he to us because he has now become sin for us. And we, in exchange, by the same rights, get his righteousness. This is the beauty of it. Christ became sin for us and he was the only one that could put it to rest. He was the only one that could take the full load and end it. That great cry from 1 Corinthians, Oh death, where is your sting? I've got the answer. Where is the stinger of death? It was plunged into the heart of Christ on the cross. And there it was broken off so that death could never hurt God's children again. The great exchange wherein the blessings of Abraham, the man of faith, are brought to bear on us so that our works problem is solved by faith. The great Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, that wasn't even meant to be a Christmas hymn. 
has this beautiful line. He comes, Jesus comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. How do we respond? First, some of you need to believe. Some of you are here because of religiosity or you want to want to for the kids or you think church tradition is a good thing, or that Jesus is a good teacher or a great example, and that sin is just a mistake that the cross overlooks. That's not Galatians 3. He's the perfect Savior, and his exchange was imminently personal. You cannot get it from your parents or your denomination. You cannot get it from the world at large. He became the curse for you, and you need to accept that. Only that life-uniting faith where your life is intertwined with his in a beautiful union that earthly marriage can only hint at, that's the only way. So believe. Don't walk away today. Your works will bring you nothing. If you choose to live by works, if you choose to present your own righteousness on the final day, that is all you will have to present. So believe. It's freely offered. The debt is paid. And if you have questions, let us help you. Okay. If you're a believer, though, I think there's, there's ways that we can apply this. The pendulum in our lives tends to swing towards the hardness of conscience or the over-softness of conscience. Right? Some of us are hard. We think we're pretty good, and we wrestle with humility. And some of us are very soft, and our failures tend to crush us. And in truth, we just have tendencies towards that way, and, and the pendulum swings back and forth. The gospel speaks to both. That's the beauty of it. When we are hard, when we think we have something to offer, the gospel crushes us. Jesus, the apostles, everybody in the New Testament, they're preaching the same thing. When people bring out their works to Jesus, he, in essence, says, this is the Jamin translation, nice try. So you thought you did a good job, huh? When we get hard, when we get haughty, when we get high, the gospel smacks us off our horse and sends us back down. But when we are soft, we are broken. When we feel like we have so much shame that we could never be forgiven, this very same gospel says that's not the point. Grace will lift you up. I believe it was Paul David Tripp who said, it's incredibly safe to open all your wounds to a God to whom you know if he finds anything, it is already forgiven. So what do we do? Dr. Tom Schreiner writes this, we must relearn the gospel every day. We may think we understand the gospel and hence can go on to something new, but almost inevitably we begin to think we are morally superior. We begin to compare ourselves to those who we think are morally deficient to prop up our fragile egos. We forget how radically sinful we are. The gospel reminds us that God's standard is perfect perfection. So also we must cling to the cross alone. Focusing on our sinfulness can depress and discourage our sins should drive us to the cross of Christ where full payment is made and God's love becomes exceedingly precious. So the rubber meets the road. Right when you encounter a failure in your life, it's going to happen. 
You're going to walk away from here. You're going to go throughout your week. And I don't know what it'll be. Maybe it'll be unjustly yelling at your kids. Maybe it'll be looking at something you shouldn't on the internet. Maybe it'll be anger, lust, frustration. I don't know. But in that moment when the Holy Spirit convicts your heart, you have a choice. Will I wallow in self-reproach and despair? Will I set myself up on a high horse and say there are others worse than me? Will I go around the horn a few times and try both out for size? Or will I go to the gospel that crushes my pride and binds my wounds? Martin Luther says it well, we are both sinners and saints. We live a life that bounces between reproach and beauty, and we dare not indulge either one. But both are meant to be washed away by the pure blood of Christ, where we are overwhelmed with nothing but His grace. I think Martin Luther said it well. On his deathbed, he, he was wrestling with this truth. The book of Galatians, and particularly this passage, changed his life. It was one of two passages that, that took him over from Roman theology to a gospel of grace by faith alone. And on his deathbed, he, he neither talked of how his words had been used to change the entire world, or like in his monkish day, days, bemoaned how horrible of a sinner he was. No, he just had these simple words. And I think they sum up where we live as Christians. We are beggars. This is true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given so much, so abundantly, that the curse of sin has been completely exhausted in Christ. That we can live no longer at war with you, but with the peace bought so preciously by your Son. Father, I pray for those here who don't know him. I pray that your spirit would work even now, that you would give unrest to their souls for the sake of salvation. They'd be willing to come. Save some today, Father. For those who you have saved, we stand before you as beggars. Give us your peace through your gospel. We say it in Jesus' name. Amen.